the one moment where it seems like somebody says murder is wrong yeah. <laughs> out loud <laughs> is when... everyone. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are delighted to welcome you back to our post-Halloween, Halloween-inspired. There's a <laughs> comma in there if you didn't hear it. Post-Halloween, comma, Halloween-inspired themed month. That is yep. murder <laughs> month. Yes, we are enjoying the second week of our themed month here. Last week we did one of the big murder plays of Shakespeare's uh, canon of plays. And uh, this week we're moving into a little bit more contemporary space by a couple hundred years. Um, and, <laughs> and talking about a, a very popular play that centers around murder. Uh, we are talking about Ira Levin's play Death Trap today. It's This is going to be an interesting conversation coming off of Macbeth, I think, because I think one thing is we're going to discover is that this play's whole environment of murder is quite different than Macbeth's whole environment of murder. <laughs> the demons which infest and torture the mind are not as present in this play. Let's just say, oh, yeah. right? Almost completely absent. It's a little different uh, tone in Death Trap than there is in Macbeth. <laughs> On the other hand, I also think we're going to discover some strange similarities between the two. What murder does to a person, what the inspiration yeah. for murder might be, what murder births into the world. I think there are some ties <laughs> here. I don't know what we're going to discover in the final two murder plays of this theme month, but there are, I was surprised to find, some very interesting connections <laughs> between Macbeth and Death Trap. It is interesting to view them in, in relief of each other, especially because at first glance, they're so juxtaposed in terms of how they deal with murder and stuff. But yeah, I agree. It's going to be a fun conversation to to get to get into and find some of those common themes as we engage in another week of our themed month. Yes, and as you know, if you're a listener of No Script, our theme month will continue through the rest of this calendar month. That's how we organize our theme months. Even though we know many of you aren't listening to them immediately as they come out, it helps us to organize them that way. So for the rest of November 2021, we will be living in this murder month sphere for plays on murder. However, November has five Mondays, so we are going to give ourselves a little break from the death and the gore, <laughs> and that break's going to come next week, halfway through Murder Month. So if you're with us as these release, or if you're listening through chronologically at a later time, our next episode is, is situated within Murder Month, but it is not a murder play. Yeah, it's a palate cleanser. You just gotta gotta reengage. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a little bit of sh sorbet, and you're back into it. So, so yeah, yeah. Next I feel like we could have done that in Miller Month too. You know, <laughs> just like a palate, something really fresh and modern, right. just to clear the Miller out of your system before you dive back in. We need more five week <laughs> months out there for us to be. Able to <laughs> we'll keep it in mind. 
One thing we'd like you to keep in mind, as our incredible listeners, is that this podcast is only supported, is only able to exist because of the incredible support that we receive through our Patreon page. Those who are supporting us on Patreon are the folks who make what we do possible. We love to do this podcast. It's a privilege. We get to talk about more scripts than you would get to talk about if you were in a dramatic literature class or working for a theater. I mean, we get the great privilege of reading, talking about scripts. It's amazing. We love it. It's not free for us to do, though. It costs us money to make this podcast go, and that just wouldn't be possible for Jackson and I unless we had the support that we get on Patreon. If you're not somebody who's supporting us, I, re- I really, really, really hope that you'll at least think about it. The lowest tier that you can support this podcast for is $1 a month. I really believe in my heart of hearts that if you listen to this podcast with any regular you are getting at least $1 a month worth of value for your time. If you agree with me, and I hope you do, please head over to patreon.com slash podcast. Again, easiest way to find us, Patreon's search function is not very good, so <laughs> you're going to have to just URL it. Patreon.com slash podcast, all one word. That's where you'll find us. We're over there. You can see all the tiers. There's higher tiers if you can afford more. But if, you're, if that $1 a month level is you, that is awesome. That helps us out a ton. You can see what we got going on over there, Patreon-only posts. We get uh, folks who are over there get to know in advance what scripts are coming up on the podcast. We post cool things about art. We post, uh, you know, a while back now we posted pictures of Jackson and I in productions from the the shows that we had talked about being in productions of on this podcast. So there's stuff going on on the Patreon page. If you're already a supporter, huge, huge, huge thank you. You are literally what makes this podcast able to continue going. So thank you for that. And if you're not, I hope we'll see you over there. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. There's your obligatory like one in 10 back yeah, to the script. That's, that's my <laughs> that's my shot. I get to go take a break now. Uh, <laughs> all right. We are jumping into the script. Uh, Death Trap, as I said, by Ira Levin. Uh, I'll give you just a brief context to kind of uh, set the stage as we engage this play. Um, Ira Levin was a novelist, a playwright, a songwriter. Um, if you know him for some things, you probably know him for Death Trap um, or his novel, The Stepford Wives. Um, those are probably one of the, the places that you know him the most from. And even if you've never read The Stepford Wives, that name probably rings a bell. Right, exactly. I, it's a fairly popular novel. Yeah, yeah. I have not read it. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. The guy who wrote Stepford the Wives. Stepford Wives. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this play was first written in 1978, and it went uh, basically straight to Broadway. Uh, it had a tryout at the Wilbur Theater uh, in, in Boston and then went on to a four-year run on Broadway under the direction of Robert Moore. Um, the, that, that production starred John Wood, Marion Sells, uh, Victor Garber and Marion Winters and Richard Woods. The, the, the play had a London premiere as well at the Garrick theater in 1978 to 1981. And it, it holds the record for the longest running comedy thriller on Broadway. So there's a bunch of, you know, bunch of adjectives in there, but it, it's, that's, that's a record. Um, <laughs> so it, it's, it's a very long running play and it's had many, uh, revivals and adapt- adaptations. It's a great, uh, show for community houses to do a nice little five-hander 
uh, set in one room. So so some uh, really good elements there, often done in community theater. It's also been adapted into a film starring Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve in 1982. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, two, two pretty... So that's that's also likely where you have uh, maybe run across this play before, but in, in its film version. Um, like, like I said, uh, it's it's also done in, in regional houses and community theaters around the country. I myself was in a production of this play not long ago. I got to play Clifford, who we'll learn lots about in a second and get to talk about. So uh, yeah, this is this is a, a play that, that I have done and a play that many people get to do because it is so accessible, tells such a, such a great kind of murdery story um that that <laughs> you know as as much as a murdery story as much as that can be a great thing uh, <laughs> so yeah that's that that's kind of the, the the scope of it uh since it was written in 1978 okay i'm gonna attempt to give a synopsis here with recognition of the fact that one of the things that makes this play what it is and a great representation of its genre, that comedy thriller genre, is that it is very intricately plotted. The the things that happen happen in very careful lockstep, marker after marker to advance the plot, to, to, to make sure that the next thing happens at the right time, to make the next thing happen at the right time. Uh, intricate, very carefully constructed plots are part of may, what make comedy thrillers or just thrillers what they are. It's part of what makes them work so well. So forgive me for my mistakes as I try to work through <laughs> this very intricately plotted show. Play takes place in 1978. I appreciate that the playwright didn't just write the present day. Just wrote October 1978. That's all we need to know, hey, man. there it is. That works so well. It ha happens in Connecticut in an old colonial home. The kind of one uh, setting... A place for this play is the study, and it is the study of Sidney Brule, who is a playwright. Sidney Brule and Mira Brule are married. At the top of the show, Sidney has just received a manuscript from a student that he had had in a seminar, I guess, a playwriting or story writing or thriller, whatever kind of seminar it was. Uh, he had had Clifford, a student, in a seminar. Clifford has sent Sidney a manuscript that he has written for a play called Death Trap. Whoa, the meta theater begins. <laughs> it's just getting started. <laughs> a play called Death Trap about a play called Death Trap. Wait, there's more. <laughs> So Sidney Brule is uh, quite jealous. He has not written anything successful in a long time. For a while, he had a string of very successful thrillers on uh, that made him quite a bit of money. That has sort of dried up. He hasn't written anything great in years. He, he's been putting on these seminars to make a little bit of money, but mostly they've been living on Mira's money. Clifford's script is excellent. It has laughs in all the right places, he says. It's got a great plot, very interesting act one, and act two that slowly builds to a big climax at the end. If you know the real play, Death Trap, you know what's coming. Uh, and so Clifford is invited over to the Brule home on the auspices of we're gonna I, I Sidney Brule, the famous playwright, am going to help you workshop this script. What's going on in the in sort of the 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 non-story 
of what that they tell Clifford is that Sidney has started to put hints out that he might murder Clifford and steal this story, this play as his own. Mira is trying desperately to make sure that doesn't happen. Clifford arrives. There's a lot of playing around with the dramatic irony of the audience knowing that a murder may be about to happen. Sidney is desperate enough money-wise, is a jealous enough person uh, that he may in fact murder Clifford. However, Mira keeps trying to make things happen to make sure that that doesn't come true. Through this series of funny conversations where the audience knows this higher level of what might be going on and Clifford is delightfully obtuse to it, uh, we learn that Clifford has on his person at that time every copy of the play that exists. Start all the chuckling in the house as you can imagine. Oh no, (laughs) here we go. Well, finally, what happens is that Sidney murders him. On stage, murders the dude. Mira is shocked. End of that particular scene is uh, them carrying the body out to bury it in the vegetable garden. One thing that we have learned, however, is that nearby there is now in a rental unit living uh, not quite a fortune teller but a psychic, someone who's worked with the police to predict murders. So in the next scene, this psychic comes by and says, I feel terrible pain in this house. And she says, goes to a chair, I feel terrible pain in this chair. And of course that's the chair that Clifford sat in. She goes to Mira, I feel terrible pain in you. And of course the audience knows Mira is in terrible emotional pain. She watched her husband kill somebody. Uh, The fortune teller goes, having gotten, based on the story that we know, a couple of things wrong. First of all, the fortune teller thinks the person who may have been there attacked Sidney, whereas we know that Sidney attacked him. Uh, Other, number of other things like that. Uh, At the end of the ad, at the end of that scene, um, Mira, who is kind of threatened that she's going to leave, uh, finally kind of comes over and says, I guess it's okay that you murdered him. I kind of wanted you to. I wanted that success. And Clifford's hand breaks through the window and <laughs> strangleholds on Sydney. He's not dead. He takes a log and cracks it over Sydney's head. He advances on Mira with the log, and Mira has a heart attack and dies right there. And then what happens is, spoilers, Sydney <laughs> pops up and Sydney and Clifford go, well, that worked really well, didn't it? Yeah, she had heart attacks all the time and we scared her enough to actually finally kill her this time. Hey, high five. They did it. <laughs> this was all a ruse. Sydney and Clifford staged Clifford's death, death so that Clifford could bust back in and scare Mira to the point where she would have a heart attack and die, and Clifford and Sidney could, what? Live together blissfully as lovers. Yes, they are in love. They have killed Sidney's wife in order that their relationship may bloom. On we go to the yeah. rest of the play. <laughs> <laughs> like right there, that's that's almost uh, a play right there. That's a play right there. Man, I am out of breath. And the plot continues, right? Because that's the thing about this particular kind of story. Plot is everything. And the plot rolls through. I'm going to try to go a little more quickly on the second half of the plot because it, it speeds along just a little bit better. What happens is that Sidney and Clifford now living together wonderfully. They've pulled off this story about Mira having a heart attack. Clifford has come to live with Sidney as his quote-unquote secretary of love. No, that's not in the script. <laughs> and <laughs> um, basically, Clifford has gone on to write the story 
of killing Mira into a fictionalized play called Death Trap. The second play in the play Death Trap to be called Death Trap right. is this play Death Trap that Clifford is writing. Sidney does not want Clifford to write this play because, of course, it will give away to the world or at least... Uh, put suspicion on the fact that they have done this thing to Mira. Clifford says, no one will ever know that we can. They can't prove it, even if they suspect it. And in fact, them suspecting it, that's going to give us some commercial success and send this thing to Broadway. Isn't this play so great? They, all this stuff that happened to us really happens in the course of the play. Uh, it, it, it goes on from there that Sidney can, agrees to work on this writing project of putting together the story of Killing Mira and what happens next into this play. It's going to be a collaboration. In the next act, Clifford and Sidney come to blows. Sidney basically tricks Clifford into uh, sort of scratching up their arms and clothes. They're working at a blocking piece for the play, and that blocking piece makes it look like Sidney's been attacked by Clifford. So Sidney pulls a real gun on Clifford and says, ha ha, I got you. It looks like you attacked me. Now I can shoot you and claim self-defense, and your play will never exist, and no one will ever know that I killed Mira. And he fires the gun, and Clifford has loaded it with blanks. <laughs> Another plot twist. Another plot <laughs> Clifford pulls his own gun and says, ah, but these have real bullets in them. Handcuff yourself to that chair. I'll give you the key as soon as I get out of here with my play. And if you ever try to stop me or tell anybody, I'm going to let it be known that you killed Mira and we'll both go to jail. At least that would be better than not having this commercial success, I guess. Uh, right. The threat seems a little empty to me, but hey. <laughs> and uh, Sydney, uh, Clifford goes upstairs to get some stuff. While he does that, Sydney breaks out of the handcuffs because they were Houdini magic handcuffs. The audience has known that all along, but it actually pulled, you know, it plays off in this moment. He breaks out of the handcuffs, grabs a crossbow, shoots Clifford in the chest. <laughs> We're not done. We're not done. <laughs> Cl uh, Sydney, now with Clifford having an arrow in the chest and I think we think dead, calls the police and says, my secretary tried to attack me when I was going to fire him. And you won't believe this, but I shot him with a crossbow. It's the only thing I could get my hands on. And then for the second time in the play, Clifford, <laughs> who we think is dead, Wakes up and chokes Sydney. Uh, they he attacks Sydney. He kills Sydney, and then he dies himself. And then there's still an end. Then there's one more scene. <laughs> These two men are now dead, and uh, Sydney's lawyer, who we met in a previous scene, he has always sort of said, "I tried to write plays, but I could never do it." He and this fortune teller character from previously. Come into the house, they sort of work out what happened through some of her fortune-telling power and some of what this lawyer knew about them. And then the lawyer goes, you know, this would make a really good play. I could even call it Death Trap. <laughs> and the fortune teller says, I will, you know, I should get 50% of the money. And they square off to attack each other over the idea of this play Death Trap. And thus ends the real play in our world, Death Trap, about the play or several plays <laughs> called Death Trap. Yep. Woo! <laughs> Nicely done. Very, very well done. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, there's, so, a lot so. that, there, there's a lot that I missed in there, right? I mean, right. lots of clues that are set up and paid off all throughout. So that's just a summary of like what you need to get the story, what you need to understand how the story is so intricately and well crafted, cleverly written, There's that, those are the things that are between the gaps of everything I described.
Yeah, the, the, the play is filled to bursting with foreshadowing. Um, the, the, the room itself foreshadows events. It's a room filled with weapons. <laughs> From scene one on, he has this collection of weapons. Some are staged, some are magic uh, handcuffs, some are like fully functioning medieval crossbows. Um, so so you have this, this epic foreshadowing in just the props itself, but then also all the lines kind of drop these hints uh, for, for the whole play, these, these hints that things are coming let be it uh you know the uh, madam tendorp the the psychic person uh who who comes in and like foreshadows a bunch of death or uh, or well and, and and a lot of those lines that pay off with an explanation later pay off so well because they have an explanation that we already think we know the explanation too right so uh madam tendorp she predicts that basically, that Clifford is going to attack Sydney, And they play it off to her like, uh, the first thing we think is, oh, she misunderstood. Sydney attacked Clifford because she said, it's a little hazy. I don't think I have quite the details right. So the audience thinks there's our explanation. Then we see Clifford attack Sydney, but it turns out to be a fake, right? He hit him with a fake log. It was all set up to kill Mira. So we go, oh, now we understand. She did see Clifford attack Sydney, but it was, it was a fake attack. Right. And it's not until the very end of the play... First, we see Clifford attack Sydney, handcuff him to the chair. We think, there it is. But then Sydney kills Clifford, and we finally see Clifford with an arrow in his chest attack and kill. I mean, there's four different payoffs, at least, to that one prediction by the fortune teller, the, the psychic. Yeah, yeah, and, and that continues throughout. That last scene seems like so kind of out of place in the in the narrative as, as you've described it, but it, it ties to a prophecy that she talked about around a knife. She prophesied that another dark-haired woman would wield this knife and turns out to be her um, that, that is wielding the knife at the end of the play. So yeah, it's just, it's just so full of this kind of really clever, really well-plotted-out, really foresight-full uh, lines and blocking and, and object work throughout throughout the play, which, which like a couple like big props rotate around and like the, the handcuffs, the guns, the knife, and, and of course the typewriter, um, uh, as part of the visions, uh, that she's having. Yeah. It's like, it's the biggest payoffiest example of the old, if there's a gun on the wall, you better shoot it. I mean, there <laughs> yeah. are weapons all over the wall, and I have to imagine they use virtually every one. I mean, to the point where there's like a stiletto on the wall, and for some reason he's, he tries to use it to unlock the desk, and it doesn't right. work. I mean, everything yep. they can pull from the wall and use, they do. Yeah, yeah, which which adds to the kind of sense of paranoia in this play, and maybe this will get into some of our kind of murder month sort of theme. Um, that so there's 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 death on all the walls, there's weapon on all the walls, um, and and there's this kind of foreboding sense of paranoia from these characters really drives a lot of the action. A lot of Act Two is around this this paranoia of. Uh, Sydney and what Clifford is writing because Clifford is like writing uh, at, at breakneck speeds. He's like churning out this play in a day, essentially. Um, and and uh, the uh, porter comes over, the lawyer comes over and like casts some suspicion on Clifford. So Sydney like tries to dig into the desk and, and it's just this, this sense of kind of pressing paranoia from him. In the scene before you get a lot of paranoia from Mirna or Mira about about what Sydney is going to do and it's just kind of in the water, this 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 distrust this this paranoia that is pushing them to these lengths to the lengths of even attempting to murder each other 
Yeah, I, well, this is one of those interesting connections with a play like Macbeth, is that in this play, very much like in Macbeth, the initial murder goes on to prompt more murders, right? Last week, we fawned over the wonderful English-level writing of the line, it will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. And that's very much Macbeth, right? He kills Duncan, so he has to keep on killing. And in this play, they kill Mira, and what comes out of it is much more death, literally the death of the two of them, to cover up the previous deaths. I mean, in these two murder plays, at least, this cycle of murder causing murder, causing murder in Death Trap, right? Because probably the the uh, psychic and the, the lawyer, one of them is going to kill the other. I think her prediction was that a dark-haired woman would kill somebody with that dagger. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. So that's both the both the kind of uh, continuing cycle that it puts itself in, but also the circle of that killing that eventually works its way around to the ones who did the killing. Um, so that's that's a, a really similar similar theme of this like blood will out or blood will blood will have blood. Um, so 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 you kind of see the like the, the comeuppance come to each of them uh, for for. <laughs> For the really ter- this this is the thing I think that that really puts it differently than than Macbeth. It's a terrible crime that they commit. And yes, <laughs> I mean it's awful. They like stage this whole thing uh, to give Mira a heart attack, <laughs> so that uh, because to basically thinking a ghoul is back from the dead coming to kill them. Um, it's terrible, and yet it's played for a laugh, and the rest of the play is played for a laugh. So that that's the one of the big differences is while those themes are still there of 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 paranoia and 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 death causing more death. Um, it, it's it's it just played so differently in this play that you you it's kind of you're 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 holding your sides laughing somehow as you're watching it. Yes, definitely. It it the tone uh, more than being comedic. There's there's sort of a shift away from the moral question of murder in this play into that kind of precisely plotted. We're going to do this murder. Here's how. Um, in Macbeth, the character Macbeth and later Lady Macbeth, the uh, and really all the people around them understand this moral weight that the murder has carried and what it does to their psyches and their souls. And in this play, there's not a lot of agonizing over the fact that they've brutally uh, caused Mira to have a heart attack, that they uh, there's not a lot of agonizing over the fact that they're going to kill each other. Right. It's just kind of like a means to an end almost. And they play with that a little bit um, with, with some lines around like because uh, Sidney is uh, like a, a murder th- mystery thriller playwright. He's like, well, you know, <laughs> I've been in this world so much. I you know, might as well have done this. <laughs> or like I've, I've given so much thought to this in my plays that, it, that of course I'd come up with some way to kill this playwright so I can get his play. Um, and, and so you have this kind of like little tongue in cheek commentary on on what the 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 links that that kind of dwelling in this space will push someone to but it's su- again it's super tongue in cheek nowhere near the weight of of like a, a full critique or like a, a moral re- wrestling all the characters seem completely fine resorting to this measure as as an option to protect this idea for their play yeah really i mean the the one moment where it seems like somebody says 
murder is wrong yeah. <laughs> out loud <laughs> is when Mira, after Sydney has, it seems like, murdered Clifford, she says, I can't believe this. I didn't, I guess I didn't ever know you. You're a murderer. You, you're going to have, we're going to have to get a divorce and I'd never want to see you again. You're a murderer, da, 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 da. But like by the end of the scene, it, the, the new question is, you know, murder's kind of an aphrodisiac, isn't right. it? Hey, yeah. It shifts that fast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which which again is the the different style of play. There's a reason why this thing has the longest running uh, Broadway production of this because it is such like a just a, 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 a I don't even know how to say this phrase like a murder romp. A murder <laughs> romp. There you go. Yeah, just like just that kind of like thriller story uh, with with intricately woven uh, wordplay and prop work and foreshadowing um, that 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 brings it all to a head, and that's kind of the fun of it is kind of uh, not wanting to root for these some of these people some of the time, but also kind of being on their side just to see what sort of shenanigans they're going to get into next. Yeah, and, and it, it's just, to me, it is so cool, so interesting to see these two plays with those very different worlds of murder, both of them still relying on the central concept that murder causes more murder. And that the moral questions, soul-crushing guilt of Macbeth and the jealousy, envy, self-defenseness that arise in Death Trap are different worlds. The comic tone and the tragic tone, of course, are the more obvious different worlds. But still at the middle is murder brings more murder. Mm -hmm. And still at the middle are two people who have perpetrated a murder together and then who are subsequently yes. kind of pitted against each other, more so in this play than necessarily in Macbeth with Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. But still, these two characters, we just watched them do something terrible together, and yet we're still spending time with them. So so the kind of thing that, that, that happens in Act 2 of this play is you don't really there, – there comes a point where you're like, okay – I, I, I'll be fine with either one of these people killing the other one <laughs> because of what we've witnessed so far. And it's really just the ride of seeing who comes out on top, who is more paranoid, who uh, who remembers to load the blanks into the guns for the last time and figures out a way to outsmart the other one. And And it's also more than Macbeth, which is more about like, the question of what's going to happen to this person who has done these things and, and how it's going to impact like the world, like the soil, the ground of Scotland, right? In this play, the experience is much more about how the story is being executed to me than it really is about the story itself. The, the master craftsmanship that is shown in what you experience is much more fascinating to me than the actual plot of the play is. There are so many small twists and turns and shifts and moments where he pays off you thinking you know something and it's something else. I mean, here's an example of just a small little snippet where there's a ton of turns. Clifford has been blazing away at his typewriter page after page. He has told Sidney he's writing basically like an Ibsen psychological realism about like office work, not the kind of thrillers that they usually write. Uh, Clifford locks away his pages in his desk to go to the store and Sidney and his lawyer meet. Sidney says, I'm writing this ESP play. The lawyer says, very cool. Hey, did you know your assistant locked his ESP play or locked his play in his desk? Maybe he's copying your idea for an ESP play and he takes off. 
Sidney tries to break in the desk, uh, doesn't man doesn't manage to get in. But that's not the point because ultimately he does manage to get his hands on the script and he reads the script. Uh, in the room with Clifford, so it's silent, but the audience watches his reaction. Well, we know what he suspects, and he reacts really badly, right? I can't believe what I'm reading is basically the stage direction for his face. Oh, crap, you traitor is the stage direction for his face, basically, right? So what's going on for the audience? We believe he has discovered that Clifford has stolen his ESP play, yep. right? I mean, that's what we've been set up to believe is going on. And that would be a perfectly interesting twist in this story, right? Clifford is stealing the idea for this play. That's what the rest of the play is going to be about. What we learned, though, is that Clifford, of course, has written the story of Mira's killing into a new play. So there's a twist on a twist on a twist there, <laughs> changing the audience's expectations over and over. Yeah, and and it's amazing how it really like makes uh, like one core action right, trying to get this script out of the drawer um, so that he can figure out whether Clifford is lying or not. That becomes the centerpiece of the action for like I don't know, it's close to fifteen minutes of the play, and it's just just this really interesting blocking. He has to like he tries to break into it, doesn't work. Clifford comes home, he has to like get Clifford to open the desk and do a bait and switch with a different pile of papers while he's out of the room. It's this whole like complicated, intricate uh, a bit of action that eventually culminates in him finally being able to read <laughs> read the play that that kind of gives that one more bait and switch, like you said, with the it's not in fact a stolen ESP play. It's him doing a tell-all of their murder of his wife. So, so you, yeah, it's this, it's this, this uh, focusing on the action rather than, uh, rather than like the internal struggles or the moral struggles of these characters that keeps you kind of re-engaging each each scene. And something about the complexity of the action, I think, helps to trick us more effectively right we pay so much attention to the action of him trying to break in the desk it's so extended we're so invested in that objective right i mean could, could there be a more clear moment in a play ever i want to break into this desk without my partner knowing i'm breaking into his desk i mean it's a very obvious moment the action lasts forever we're fully invested in the journey and it, that trickery that is part of the trickery right because we're so invested in that action it helps us to not for a minute go maybe it's not an esp play right right, right? i mean mm-hmm. it, we we just either live in the world where he's going to discover that he hasn't been writing the esp play or what we know because we're smart audience people right is if this takes up so much time in the play it must be important so we just live in the world it's, it's, he's definitely going to find an ESP play in there and then he's going to murder him I know what's going to happen next right. right yeah and that 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 is the 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 meat that this play plays with all the time I know what's going to happen next yes um, and 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 that happens in the first scene where Sydney is we're, we're almost positive he's going to kill Clifford through that whole first scene so when he finally gets Clifford to put the handcuffs on we're like oh here it comes um and and but but eventually that's turned on its head he after after he kills him and he comes back we find out Clifford was on board all along the scene in the second act with the desk also the scene in the second act in the the final scene has a kind of a different flavor to it but similar 
uh, similar structure of Sydney starts walking him through this blocking and like fighting with him, wrestling with him, putting an axe in his hand, telling him to put it down on the ground. And there's this sense of like, oh, something's happening. Something's building. We think we know what it is, but it's almost always turned on its head, sometimes multiple times in the course of the complicating action. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to really carefully walk through the script to prove this out, but I'd be sort of surprised if there were any moment in the play which happened in a straightforward way. Yeah. Where what is like set up to happen just happens that way and thus it goes on. And what's great is that almost no point in the play is what could happen based on our expectations uh, a not interesting choice, right? I mean, a play about a dude who kills this guy who comes to his house because he wants his play, that's an interesting story too, right? Sort of a producer's style, goofy cover-up kind of murder play. That would have been an interesting play. It's not like we're watching going, this is going to be boring unless there's a twist. There's interesting story that twists into interesting story that twists into interesting story that twists into interesting story. And there comes a point where you sort of expect the twist. He shoots him with the crossbow, and you go, there's no way he's dead. (laughs) He's absolutely coming back. No way he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, no, each subsequent twist kind of reacclimates us to the sort of play we're watching. And which which is also really fun and fascinating uh, psychologically for the for for like the the production team to be doing to the audience because there's so many fun different sort of tech elements that come into it. There's like a storm that happens um and 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 just just like really fun stuff that you get to kind of manipulate what is just one room. There's no scene changes, which again is great for for regional houses and community theater productions to be able to engage with you just have to build one set but there's so many kind of atmospheric things to be playing with to continue this illusion for everyone that they know what's going to happen there's there's a scene where the power is going out and you just imagine all the foreshadowing of what's going going to happen as the power goes out with this kind of pressure cooker of these two people in in in, in the house full of weapons that is just a really ideal ideal way to try to build the pressure as the end of the play is coming and into this like story very much about uh, you know goals and uh, pursuing an ambition to to produce the best play versus the the hidden secret of wanting to cover up this murder clashing ideas coming to bear as realism in a comedy way insert the psychic who yeah. you know produces for us a number of these psychic reasonings these these foreshadowings these predictions that end up of course all bearing out but again in that twisty turny never like you expect way yeah, and even her predictions when she's like over and talking to them don't happen in a sort of predictable way. Um, she's when when she's there, she'll like give other predictions about like her family and and uh, other goings on. She like advises them to watch her when she's on TV later that month and things like that. So yeah, there's like this 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 kind of chaotic element of the psychic walking in and 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 also the kind of. Uh, 
the 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 eventually we begin to figure out that she's probably getting something that something is 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 uh, materializing for her as far as some sort of future prediction. So like the second time she appears and predicts and notices Clifford there, um, it really adds some more weight to the foreboding. We because at the end of that that happens after the first scene of Act Two. So they're kind of we kind of think that maybe Sydney and Clifford are kind of working on this play together, and she sets the 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 machinations running again in our mind. She shows up and she's like, oh, you're here. You, you, I saw you in a vision. You were the person with the boots that's going to kill Sydney. Uh, she doesn't say that to him, but that's, that's the audience knows that. So, so she kind of serves as this, like, you thought there was, you thought we were done with the action. <laughs> it's still coming. There's going to be more coming your way in just a minute. So kind of buckle up. We got more predictions for you, more foreshadowing to do. Yes. Yes. And it, it all is this, payoff to i mean it, this play exceeds in paying off things in a way that is satisfying so much so that there's one moment in the play that i feel like is not paid off very well and it's a moment that i don't quite understand in in sydney's conversation with his lawyer they reveal that myra has left him several hundred thousand dollars a, a fairly sized estate and when he talks to Clifford about it, he claims that there's virtually no money left, something like $20,000. And that's the one interesting little detail inserted into the story that I, I'm just, I'm never sure how that is supposed to impact anything to come. I suppose you would say it's the reason why Sidney doesn't care that Clifford's play Death Trap about Mira's murder gets made because he's not actually poor. Yeah. Is that does it change his mind? But he learns that before he knows about Clifford's play. Like if the lawyer scene came after he agreed to do Sid, uh, Clifford's play Death Trap with him, and so he learned, I'm not poor. I don't need this play to come out. I'd rather cover up the murder. To me, that would fit. It, it would make more sense in my brain in terms of the plot arc than him knowing it before he ever learns about Clifford's play about Mary's death. Yeah, I agree. It's an odd element and it's and it's odd both both because of what you just said and because it's such a like that scene with the lawyer has so many like like it seems like unimportant details in it. Right, like the cousins <laughs> in Europe that he might go. Yeah. That's such a strange, why do we need to know that? Right, so to like seed something in there that 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 is going to come up again, that is foreshadowing, is a tough thing to do in a play that has a lot of very interesting action to have this like really wordy scene about, you know, uh, <laughs> the estate of, of, a, of a spouse who has passed away. Um, I think I think the, the one other thing that I think really that that it does mechanically for the play um, is adds more foreshadowing to it. There's, there's more foreshadowing <laughs> because because we notice that he lies to Clifford at the end of of this scene. Um, and and that lie about yeah, there's barely any money left. Um, kind of starts to cue us in that that not all is 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 uh, copacetic uh, for Sydney at the end of the scene because Clifford generally has like this 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 sense that that he can convince Sydney to do whatever he wants him to do, and he kind of does in the words of the scene. Yet that lie kind of tricks us in that we're like, oh, Sydney's holding stuff back. Maybe Sydney isn't as on board as we think he is. Right, because if they're going to live happily ever after as lovers who've killed his wife, then why not tell him about the money? 
Why not say, hey, look, there's no reason to write this play. We don't need a smash hit. I've inherited a bunch of money from my wife. Yeah. Now, it could also be an, a misunderstanding on my part because at the beginning of the play, he and Mira discuss that he's basically bled her dry. That doesn't seem to be true to me. That that I don't think that money is money that like has been spent and the lawyer just doesn't know about it because the stage directions call for Sydney to be somewhat surprised we, I mean, all it says is surprise, but it seems like the obvious implication is surprised by the amount of money that's left. I wonder if it isn't like just another little twist around like being sure that <laughs> no one in this play really comes out as a pitiable figure. <laughs> like, I wonder if it isn't like because it, it, it's uh, at least what Sydney says, uh, the, or I'm sorry, not Sydney, what Porter says um, was that, you know, all of her records are in Apple Pie order and she has like a lot of money left. So you kind of have this wondering if 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 Mira was being honest with Sydney or not either. So right, really... like why was she keeping secrets <laughs> too? I exactly. don't understand. Apparently he didn't know about the two hundred thousand. I mean, the whole play is set off by that the idea that he they might be so poor that he needs another smash hit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wonder if it isn't that. I wonder if it isn't just like, oh boy, all these people are messed up. And like, <laughs> they're all keeping secrets from each other. They're all paranoid about stuff. Um, so so uh, not that everything's okay. Not that all the murder is okay, but rather a no wonder all this murder happened. Everyone is like not trusting each other. And it was eventually going to happen this way. Yeah, look at this house full of secret keepers. What could happen but murder? <laughs> exactly, with a room full of weapons. <laughs> right, I mean, the, like, not only it being a house of secrets, but it, like, being a house of murder in the sense that this playwright of murder has produced so much murder in his life that it be like the house itself becomes a death trap, right? There's all these weapons up on the wall. It kind of reminds me of that Daniel Craig movie that came out recently. Uh, uh, Knives Out is what it's called. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- it's like the, I think it's, it's actually a fairly similar plot now that I think about it. Uh, this murder <laughs> novelist there's a he's surprised death in this house where all of his murders had been inspired and there's all this memorabilia from these murder novels is all around and that's part of what is happening in the like I mean, I sort of hesitate to call it a meta level because it's not like a break the fourth wall and comment on the play kind of meta level. But clearly there is a level to this play that we're laughing at the play being a play itself, right? They're writing a play, actually several plays, with the same name as the play, with the same plot as the play that we're watching, set in a murder house like the play that we're watching. Right, yeah, you almost wonder if you're going to like go to the talkback session afterwards and whoever won the knife fight at the end is there as the playwright of the play. Like that's kind of the <laughs> the 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 sense that you might get at the end of the play is that you know that we're, we actually watched the events that inspired the ongoing uh the yeah, the ongoing production of this play. So so it's very very yeah, I agree meta is a weird word to use for it, but it's very um very uh, uh, looking, very aware, I guess, is the is maybe a, oh, another word to use for it. Very aware of itself as a play. Very aware of, of its theatrical nature and the kind of totems of plays that are all over the walls with all the props uh, props and, and stage combat items that are there to kind of force action along. Right, because you're right, exactly right. The play is set up such that 
Excuse me, what you didn't hear because Jackson cut out the noise was that I just coughed all over the drink I was taking a drink of. So I'm a little gravelly and you do, you don't know anything about it up until this moment. Um, you're, you're, but what I'm saying is that you're right, right? Because it's set up, the play is set up so that whichever one of the lawyer or the psychic at the end of the play is the victor and survives could write a play called death trap about the events of this story and then we would all come and watch it and it would be death trap by ira levine ira levin right i mean it's because the play the, the the plot of the play they're writing matches the plot of the play that we're seeing there becomes this like it's it's not like a play within a play like um Arabian Nights by Marion Zimmerman or even Hamlet is, right, where we watch a production. But it is in the sense that they're, they're, we understand the plot of a play is being played out inside of the play. And then there's this connection where it also is the play. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. There's even like there's even like some like uber self-aware stuff in there too where like I, I believe the 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 version of the play that I have was written after the or adapted after the movie came out. So it even like has like self-referential <laughs> Uh, lines about that, like uh, it could Sydney, become a movie. It could become a movie. It could maybe star Michael Caine. Um, yes, and then, yes, yes. It, it's exactly right. So, so it is this like super self-aware, super uh, yeah, just full knowledge that it is a play. And and yeah, and if you were to try to make sense of it, a play that has been written as or from a witness of these events. And isn't that an interesting connection with Macbeth, right? <laughs> Macbeth, there are moments of that kind of commentary, right? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in his petty, pays from day to day to the last syllable of recorded diamond. Oh, yesterday's light of fools away to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a poor player, a walking shadow. Struts and frets his hour yeah. upon the stage. Tis a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There is commentary on the, the level at which the audience knows what they're seeing is a play and Macbeth is talking about plays and that appears in this murder story too. I don't know. There's a connection (laughs) there. (laughs) Maybe murder uh, requires Uh, (laughs) self-reflection. I don't know. That will be very interesting to discover the other plays that we read because murder is one of those things like like any kind of violence on stage or sex on stage that we understand as an audience is not really happening. I mean, it it has always felt to me that murder, violence of any kind, or moments of real physical intimacy, there's a little bit at which I'm taken out of the experience in those moments because I am aware that that actor can't really be being killed. I'm aware that those two actors aren't really having sex on stage, right? So maybe there is this tenuous, if you're going to live in a world where actors fake their deaths on stage trying to trick the audience into believing the story that they really are dying, it, there's also this this push out towards you, we know you know it's a story. And that maybe being part of the cycle of drawing us back in to live in the story if there's a recognition that we all know it's a story. Yeah, yeah, that's the reason why a lot of like Greek tragedy and Shakespeare plays did murders off stage. 
um, because there was this this kind of uh, fundamental lack of realism um, or lack of belief that the character in front of you is dying. Certainly that's the case in this play because, I mean, having been in this play, uh, there's there's the, if, 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 you, if the characters die on stage, it's at the end of these lengthy fights and, and all but the best actors who have a lot of body control are going to be panting after Winded, those. yeah. yeah. These are the, you're exactly right. <laughs> the murders in this play are very physical. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that that corpse is not breathing up a storm back there. Uh-huh, yep, I was. Um, you so- were, <laughs> with an arrow in your chest. With an arrow in my chest to, like, metronome how much I was breathing. Uh, so- <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> it would just wave back and forth as you're breathing. That's yep. awesome. <laughs> yep, so there is that, that, that like, extra sense of, like, of, of something outside of what is actually happening, the physical action itself, that you kind of have to let go of or re-engage engage differently, re-engage intellectually or re-engage comedically perhaps. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know, acknowledging the awareness that the audience has of the falseness of the death. I don't, I don't know if you asked Shakespeare or you asked Ira, if that's what they were doing, they would go, yes, for sure. But I mean, we got a small sample size, but in two murders so far, there's death and there's a recognition that what you're seeing is a story all in the same story. I think that's just about all the time that we have for this play, this uh, Death Trap uh, by R11. So excited that we get to talk about it today uh, and and that we get to continue to talk about it in kind of uh, compare and contrast mode as a result of being in our themed month of Murder Month. So, uh, but fortunately, the conversation doesn't have to fully end here. We'd love to keep talking about this play with all of you out there on the interwebs. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those platforms or sites. We'd love to keep talking about Death Trap or any of the other plays in this murder month with you. Absolutely. If you like our themed months, if you love this podcast, if there's just episodes that you like, if you enjoyed this one or others, for whatever reason it is that you are engaging with us, we hope that you're willing to pass that reason on to others. If you like scripts, literature, drama, theater, whatever, you probably know people who do too. So suggest this podcast to them. We are surprised and awed that after all these years, after we're coming to the end of seven seasons, the listenership is growing and growing and growing. We're blessed by that. We appreciate the work that you all do to spread the podcast around. You can send folks to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or where we're hosted on Podbean. For those who don't want to do the work or just can't technologically of finding us out on those platforms, just like us on Facebook. You'll get posted to your timeline every week when it happens, an advertisement about the play that's coming up on Monday, and then a link to listen to the episode itself. So connecting with us on Facebook, easiest way to just click and listen to the podcasts that are coming up, including two more episodes about murder. But first, a little, what'd you call it? A palate cleanser. A palate cleanser. Yes. Tune in next week for our palate cleanser episode um, of of our themed month. Uh, and then tune in the next two weeks for uh, our kind of uh, finishing uh, bouts with, with murder the- Murder most <laughs> foul. Yes. Yeah. So until next week, when we are talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. 
I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. As this episode ends, my throat is finally clearing up. Oh, that, that's a relief. Good, 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 good. All of the fluid has left my lungs. <laughs> and now I can talk normally again, and we're done. So, nice, there it is. This, yeah. is. this is how podcasting goes, I guess. It is the way. <laughs> <laughs> it is the way. Well, suddenly, this is an advertisement for The Mandalorian. I love that it. That probably tells us it's time to wrap up. <laughs> See Goodbye. See ya. <laughs>